Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at Isaiah uh, chapter 25. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the service, this is our first Sunday to celebrate Advent together this year as a congregation. And uh, one of my focuses, just as a, as a leader in the church, somebody who's been thinking ahead and planning towards these two weeks of celebration, has been to do what we can to reclaim Advent from Christmas. Uh, if you don't know what I mean, I, I, need to, I need to spend a couple minutes here explaining what I mean. I, um, I've already caught a little bit of grief over the fact that we haven't sung a lot of Christmas carols this morning. Sorry about that. Uh, we are going to sing some carols at some point. Let me explain to you why we haven't sung a lot of carols this morning. It has a lot to do with reclaiming Christ, uh, Advent from Christmas. Advent has historically been a season of longing and expectation of unmet but strong and vibrant hope. Advent is about looking to Israel's past to find out what it was that made them long for Jesus, what made Jesus such a, such a perfectly suited Savior for their hopes and needs. And then looking from the past to the future at what promises God has made to us that are still left to be fulfilled, to trying to create in us... I think we're okay. Yeah, we're good. To try to create in us a sense that, uh, of the same expectation and longing that Israel would have had as we look to Jesus and his return. So we're selling ourselves short, in other words, if we just start December as a congregation already celebrating the birth of Jesus. We miss this component built into the church year that's about longing, that's about waiting and looking to the future. Advent is a season that's meant to prepare us to celebrate Christmas with eyes that are open, that see why the coming of Jesus is such a powerful reason for joy and peace. So we sing Advent-oriented hymns together, and we look at Advent-oriented texts, texts that look at why we need a Savior to come. The prophets are especially helpful for Advent because they were looking to multiple horizons just as we do. One of the best analogies that I've heard for how to understand what's going on in the prophets uh, is, is that looking at the prophets is kind of like driving up to a mountain range from a long distance away. Like if you're driving, uh, say, to East Tennessee, you're going to Gatlinburg or something. From, when you first start to see the mountains from a distance, they kind of just look like one big wall of mountains, don't they? But what we know is that there's all different heights and hundreds and hundreds of miles between them. They're not just like a flat surface that you run into. There's multiple mountains along the way, and, and the prophets are kind of the same way. They see everything almost, almost from a flattened perspective. They look at the future. But in the middle of their prophecies, some things are individual mountains scattered out, sometimes years and years and years away from each other. And we're kind of there. I, being, being the church of God that comes after Jesus' birth, but before he returns to make all things new, we're kind of on one of those mountains in the middle of the range somewhere. Things have happened that have changed history forever. Things are still to come that will give us a full realization of our hopes. And we're kind of here in the middle, and the prophets help us identify where we are and how to look to the future better with more clarity. Isaiah is one of the best for this. And because we're going to start a study of Isaiah as a congregation the first week in January, our next series is going to be in Isaiah. I thought it would be great to do a little preview of the series by using Isaiah texts to help us pre prepare to celebrate Christmas fully. Isaiah is one of the best at helping us clarify our need for a Savior because he's one of the best at highlighting for us what one person has called the dual evil of the human condition. 
the dual evil of the human condition. Basically, all of us have built-in problems on two fronts. We are afflicted by sorrow, by suffering, by things that happen to us, things that we fear related to the brokenness of this world and that we cannot control. And on this side, we're afflicted by sin, by willful rebellion against the God who made us, by things that we have done and that we can't undo. We are afflicted by fears and by our sins. And both of those require a very particular kind of deliverer. What I want us to do in Isaiah is look this week at the way Isaiah promises release from, deliverance from, things that we fear and that we can't control. And next week, look at how Isaiah promises deliverance from sins, things that we have done that we can't undo. And if we put those two things together, we are ready to see how Jesus is a full-orbed Savior like no one else is. How Christmas really does mean the beginning of the end of all evil and the coming of that glorious morning we all live for. That's our goal this, this next two weeks, starting with today. Honestly, I mean, as you've probably picked up on, and to, to prepare for Christmas through a season of Advent means preparing for this time of joy and cheer by looking at bleakness directly in the face, by staring at the brokenness, at the, the hurt and the suffering and the sorrow, at all the things that are wrong with the world. Because unless we confront those things clearly and honestly, we won't be prepared for the beauty that Christmas represents. It means in this season of tinkling bells and twinkling lights, we've got to stare down the bleak reality of what it is to be us and to live in this world. We've got to consider darkness. Otherwise, we're just distracting ourselves. We're just medicating ourselves through Black Friday deals and Christmas candies and the stress of what to get for who. As if it isn't true that we're all just going to die someday anyway. We owe it to ourselves to shake free from this malaise and comfort and and to confront why we need Jesus. And Isaiah 25 is here to help. Isaiah 25 shows us why we need deliverance from what we fear and can't control, from the brokenness of of the world that happens to us. Not the brokenness that we're guilty of. That's next week. The brokenness that just happens to us, that comes from living here. Isaiah 25 is a description of what the world will be like when God's destroyed evil once and for all, when God has built a new city for his people that's free of all that holds us back and holds us down. The descriptions here are all positive. They're all about the the way the new world will look. But as we walk through, what we want to do is, is uncover what it is behind the positive that's created the need for it. What's wrong that this new world will fix? We want to confront what it is we need Jesus to release us from. And there are several things. And if you've got your worship guide, you can follow along. They're all listed for you there. We're going to walk quickly through each of them. First, I'd like to read the passage together. So if you found Isaiah 25, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? This is the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. 
It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you, and cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first bank of images in this passage that stretches from verse 1 to verse 5 all have to do with injustice and the, pro- the promise that God will release us from injustice. They refer to God crushing the power of the strong and the ruthless and defending the poor and the needy. They refer to the consistent claim of the Bible that God hates injustice in all its forms and he won't stand for it. Walk through the images with me. They begin in verse 2 with the promise that God... It's Isaiah looking to the past as if it was already done because it's so certain. Even though the thing that he's describing is still to come. God will make the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace a city no more. The city language is common all through Isaiah. It represents... This, the, the best attempts of the world to organize their lives apart from God. The city is defined by what it looks like to build a society without reference to the God who made us and who holds us accountable to his will. The city is a place of darkness. It's bleak and it's defined by injustice. And many of the chapters leading up to chapter 25 describe it in detail. What it was like and what God would do to it. That's what's referred to in verse 2. He's going to crush it. Verse 3 says that the strong peoples will glorify him and the ruthless nations will fear him. That sounds pretty positive, as if they've kind of come around. But the, 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 in the original, it's clear that they, it's not that they've started worshiping him, but they have come to heal. God has broken the power of the ruthless. He has caused them to fear him and to respect him because they have no choice but to acknowledge that he is God and they are not. That's the promise. He promises to be a stronghold to the poor a stronghold to the needy. Again, it's a positive promise, but we can see the reality, the negative reality behind it. Why would they need a stronghold? Because, verse 4 says, the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall. Because they had been smashed by those who were powerful enough to do whatever they wanted. Those who, rejecting God, had no reason not to do whatever was possible. It's a might-makes-right system that exploits the weak because you, because you can 
the poor and the needy need a stronghold because they are not powerful enough to resist the blast that is the wind of the ruthless. But God will protect them. These images make sense as a response to what they experienced then and what we experience now. That's that the ruthless exploit the weak because they can. Justice in the Old Testament is one of the most common themes. Justice in the Old Testament is not about creating a society in which there are no poor and needy. It assumes that that, that societies always have those who are poor and needy. Justice is about... It's about protection of the weak from oppression at the hands of the strong and the ruthless. Injustice always comes from somebody or some group recognizing they want something and they have a right to it because they can take it. Ancient Israel is no stranger to this and neither are we. Injustice is basic to the human experience. It's everywhere. And God always hates it. God hates slavery in all its forms. He hates sex trafficking. He hates abortion. He hates the oppression of the poor. He hates all things that exploit those who cannot protect themselves. And he won't stand for it. The promise of this text is that the strength of those who would oppress the weak is a mirage. And God will crush them. Now, I want to take just a minute to speak to those of you who may be skeptical of the existence of the Christian God precisely because you see so much injustice everywhere. You, know, you hear passages like this one, and then you look around the world, and you see that it's full of injustice, and you think, isn't the world as it is now a referendum on whether or not God is who he says he is? He claims to care about the weak, but the weak are exploited all over the world. Doesn't that mean that God, that God just isn't? Either he doesn't exist or he's not powerful in the way he claims to be or he just doesn't care. If that's, if that's something that you're confronting this morning as you look through this passage, let me encourage you very quickly to think about this in a slightly different way. In chapter 24, like I said, the emphasis is on the city as it looks when it's built without God. What sorts of things are true of it and the fact that God will crush it. In the middle of that passage in verse 10 in chapter 24, what, what most commentators have pointed to is sort of the theme verse for the chapter. We're told that the city is described as the meaningless city. A city built on just what power could accomplish, not built on any sense of truth, no overarching sense of meaning. It's a wasted or meaningless city. That's the way it's described. And what I would encourage you to think about if you're struggling with how God can exist and allow this stuff to happen in the world is the alternative of a world that, is, that, is, that has come from, from just material forces, from no God who put things here, is what chapter 24 describes as a meaningless or wasted city. And it's a city in which injustice is inevitable. Because what comes natural to us if there's not someone who put us here and gave us a purpose to fulfill, who holds us accountable to his will, if that person doesn't exist, then what you're left with is social Darwinism, is the survival of the fittest, is everyone taking a right because they have might. What you have is a meaningless city. There is a connection between that city and injustice. Those two things go hand in hand. And if you're bothered by injustice but skeptical of the Christian God, then I wonder if you've thought carefully enough about the fact that apart from this God, 
you really have no reason to expect justice. You have no reason to value justice. All that matters is power. You want a reason to care about injustice like your conscience tells you you ought to? And you need God. Who else has the right to say that this sort of behavior isn't okay? What would we say? Who, who else has the right to say it's not okay? A social contract? The will of the people? What totalitarian government in the 20th century didn't come because the people decided this is what they wanted? Hitler was elected democratically. Justice requires meaning. It requires something that's true everywhere and by necessity. And that only seems possible if, if it's established and upheld by the one who made all things. And if you care about justice, here's the last thing I'll say. If you really care about justice and you want to fight for it, then not only do you need God for justice to even make sense, you need God to make your efforts at justice meaningful and important and lasting. Because don't buy in, as young, as, as, as young people, don't buy in to the, to the thought that you and your generation are going to be the ones that rid the world from injustice forever. You're not. And if you give yourself to it and three years later you've not made a dent, you're going to get disillusioned and cynical and you're going to stop even trying. But if you own the promise of the God who made this world and is coming again to make it new, that justice will reign, then everything you do to participate in what he's promised will happen has meaning. It will last. It will stand the test of time. What you need is not to be the Messiah, but to know who he is and to align yourself with him once and for all. And if, if you own this hope, then your actions all of a sudden take on a whole new light. If you want to celebrate Christmas and the promise that the mighty counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God is coming, then you need to look at the world and all of its injustice and stare it in the face with honesty and then fight back against it because you trust in the one who will make all things new. Release us from injustice. That's the first and the longest of our passages uh, promises much more quickly. In verse 6, our author moves on to God as a deliverer from want. Advent is about praying. Release us from want. Verse 6 describes a party. On this mountain, the, the, the new world that God creates in Isaiah is often pictured as a mountain or as a city. Jerusalem was built on a mountain, and that's what he's talking about. On this mountain where everything is going to be made new, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. The image is of a massive and universal banquet a party in which all people are included. Behind, behind this image lies the world as we know it, where as many as one in six are living in, in hunger today. This is a promise that God will provide everything that's needed and then some. Not only will he give the basic food required for life, but he will give the kind of food that you eat when you're not worried about having anything to eat. He will give the kind of food that's like you know, a, a nice filet or caviar or well-aged wine. The kind of thing that you drink when you don't need your grapes to survive, but you can afford to wait years on this drink to develop so that it, it, it reaches the perfect taste. These, are about, these images are about plenty. There's no, there's no worry. There's no fear. There's no question that you're going to have enough to eat, and so you party. That's what God promises is coming. Not bread and soup or peanut butter and jelly but filet mignon, 
What a stark contrast to our psyche in this life. Even those of us who have plenty of food, right? How many of us worry about having enough money to live the lives we want to live? Often the lives that we think we need to live or should live. How much time do we spend thinking through the what ifs? What if we lost our job? What if we couldn't afford this house? What if we were unable to put food on our table? We're not farmers, at least most of us aren't. They know they can't control their food because they can't control crops. They can't control weather. They live year to year looking to God to give them what they need. We're a little bit insulated from that because we go to, to Publix and buy what we need. But in a sense, we're in an even more precarious position. If Publix goes away, what are we going to eat? I don't know where my food comes from. I don't even know how to prepare it. The promise of this new world is that we don't even think about those things because God sets the feast before us. His are the cattle on a thousand hills, and he needs nothing. Advent is a season for thinking about hunger, for thinking about those who really do struggle to eat, not just who have the preoccupations that we have with sort of, am I going to have enough, but who really do struggle from meal to meal. It's a time for looking at them and engaging them and knowing them personally so that you're able to look to these promises with more clarity and more passion and longing. Advent is a great time to go on Saturday with a group of folks from Trinity to serve at the East Nashville Cooperative Ministry. Go and, go and eat with these people for whom every meal has to be planned out in advance because they don't know where it's going to come from. They have to find places like ENCM. And when you meet with them and you watch them, when you find more about what it's like to be them, you will connect more vividly with the promise of this verse and you will see more clearly why we need deliverance from want. Verses 7 and 8 take us to the next image. Release us from death. Yes, Advent is also a time for thinking about death. You heard me. If you want to connect with the meaning and joy of Christmas in between your trips to the mall and the office parties, you've got to pause and reflect on the fact that you are going to die. Verses 7 and 8 speak to this, speak to this fundamental reality, this, what you might call the fundamental human problem, the problem all of us have. It describes it as a veil or a covering cast over all the peoples. You see that in verse 7? talking about what God will do to swallow it up, but this is the description of death that matters. It is a covering cast over all the peoples, a a veil spread over all nations. That's a great image for what death is like, isn't it? That if you actually think about it, it puts a low ceiling on whatever you might accomplish in your life. It it, it puts this covering that, that gobbles up the meaning of anything you might try to do, if death is the end, right? Apart from any intervention by by God. If death is what defines all of us, then in some sense, death matters more than life. It is more fundamental. It, is, it lasts longer, and it's more, it holds more true. It levels everyone, no matter what happens in your life, from someone who lives in poverty from day one to someone who is born with the golden spoon or whatever the image is. Ultimately, they, they, their life on earth is, what, 80 years at, 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 in a generous assessment? And then they die and end up in exactly the same place. So what's the point? 
death, or no matter what we might go through in this life, no matter how good it is, if death is the end, it's, I used this image a couple weeks ago, it's, isn't it a lot like just test driving a Bentley only to drive home in your 95 Cavalier? Death swallows up meaning, purpose, value. Death matters more than whether you have success in your field or in your studies, than whether you get married like you hope to, than whether you get what you want to for Christmas. Death matters more than all of that. It defines us if it's the end. But here, God promises that on his mountain, in his kingdom, he will swallow up that which threatens to swallow us and all that we love. That death itself will be swallowed. I love that reversal. It's almost, there's some irony in that description of it. Because death, if you think about it clearly, is something that swallows us and everything that matters about us. And God will swallow that great swallower and do away with it once and for all. How can this be? That's the question we're meant to be left with. How is he going to do this? The next image is in verse 8. A promise that God will release us from sorrow. The promise is short and sweet. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. But in that simple line, in the image and the, the phrases that are used comes a life-altering, deeply encouraging truth. All of us, is almost as basic as death, I guess it is as basic as death, as fundamental to what it's like to be us, is to know sorrow. All of us know it. Disappointment, relational hurt, relationships that can't bounce back, loss of, loss of loved ones, loss even of loved times and experiences, the the sorrow of watching your kids grow older when you just want to pause and keep things the way that they are. In the most extreme form, many of us have known sorrow as depression, a dark, inexplicable feeling of despair and hopelessness as if you can't change anything about where your life is, as if you will always feel this way, as if life itself is not worth living. And if that's you... If you're there now, Christmas can be especially hard to bear. What with all the joy and cheer. With all the tinkling bells and the the happy-looking people and the advertisements getting exactly what they want for Christmas and therefore obviously exactly what they want out of life. You know these commercials. Sleek modern home. White floors, white walls, white ceilings. White furniture. Gas logs in the fireplace. Preternaturally wealthy couple, happy, drinking something warm, cuddled up in front of that fire in the 60-inch plasma that's turned off because they have no need to watch TV. (laughs) The wall of windows outside of which snow is gently falling, but inside they're insulated from it. They're happy, they're comfortable, they're clean and warm, they're mess-free. Husband leads his wife out out of the house to see a brand new luxury coupe with a big red bow on it. They give it as casually as a new V-neck sweater. 
if this is what Christmas is about, if this is who Christmas is for, then where does that leave us in our sorrow? If those kind of ads are hard for you, then Advent is your season. Here is the promise of Advent. God will wipe away your sorrow. Look at the personal imagery in this verse. That the sovereign Lord, the Lord God, it's his title. The, the Lord for, it translates a word that is never used for anything else. It is absolute sovereignty. The God who is bigger than everything, who holds this world up by his own hand. That Lord God will wipe away every tear, tears from every face. Don't miss that every face. Here's what it means. It means that God knows you. He knows exactly why you are in sorrow and he will address you as the one who made you but also loves you. Isn't one of the most frustrating things about sorrow that we have such a hard time communicating it well to others? There's just, it's just so hard to bring someone in on it with us. Even those whom we, whom we love and who are, who are empathetic in nature those who are our closest friends and have had similar experiences, even them, at some point, empathy breaks down and there's just, a, there's just a, a ceiling to how well they can know us and what we feel. But God knows all. He knows exactly where your tears come from and he will wipe them clean. The sovereign Lord who makes nations to rise and fall is also the God who knows when every sparrow falls to the ground. And he will wipe away every tear. Here's the last image. Verse 8 also. God will release, his, release us, release his people from reproach. From reproach. Verse 8 says, The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Now, there's not a lot of specificity there, is it? It doesn't, it doesn't go into detail about why they were experiencing shame or reproach. It doesn't seem to be here shame over something they'd done wrong. You know, a text that we're going to look at next week goes there, but that doesn't seem to be his emphasis here. It's much more connected to Israel's past, to their history. One commentator noticed that it's very similar language to when Israel was delivered from Egypt, that that was like God, God the language is God is taking away the reproach of their slavery. Another commentator, though, went a step further, and I think this really hits home. I hope it will with you. The reproach that's being taken away is the shame at believing in a God who claims to care about us and about this world while we and this world are so full of suffering and sorrow. The reproach that comes from being his people identified with this God and having our interests not reflect the nature of his character and his promises to us. There is a kind of shame in that. There's a kind of mockery that comes from those who don't believe in God because of the nature of the world and all of its sorrow. And Israel knew it well. Isaiah has several references to the powerful nations that were about to come in and wipe Israel clean, where these nations were saying, do you think that your God will save you? The gods of these other peoples haven't saved them when we've come in and conquered them. And when Israel and Judah are conquered by these nations, they look at them and say, "Here, see, your God is empty. He's powerless. He can't deliver on the things that he's promised to you. They carry around with them a reproach that asks, where is God? Doesn't he care? This is just one form of the question that all believers face when we consider the evil and suffering in the world. 
How can the God that we talk about allow this and still be real, still be who he claims to be in the Bible? Now, there, there are obviously some defensive answers that we can give to this question that are helpful to an extent. For example, it's tr- isn't it true that any God big enough to blame for not doing anything to stop the evil and injustice and suffering in the world is also a God, if he's big enough to stop it and therefore be blamed for it, wouldn't he also be big enough to have a good reason for allowing it that we just can't understand that's a mystery to us? But let's be honest, that, that's a helpful response. But it leaves the personal, the existential struggle that all believers face at one time or another. The mystery that's tough to live with when you're the one who's suffering or when you've seen it up close on a large scale. Where is God? Friends, there is no answer that will take away the weight of that question at one time or another in your life. The only thing that will get rid of that question and the reproach that lies behind it is the coming of Jesus when he comes in his glory to establish his kingdom once and for all. In that day, you won't have to ask that question anymore. It will be answered for you once and for all because God will take away the reproach of his people. Now, to this point, this hasn't really been much of a Christian sermon, even. Jesus hasn't shown up. We've been looking at the terms of this Old Testament text and the promises that God makes there. But remember the mountain range analogy. We are not where Israel was when they first heard these prophecies. And we can't look at this text fully and responsibly without seeing how Jesus' first coming changes so much about our perspective. The fact is that Jesus has come. Isaiah sharpens his promises about how God is going to pull all this off, about how he's going to crush injustice, how he's going to swallow up death, how he's going to wipe tears from every face and take away our reproach. Isaiah sharpens the focus. He narrows it in, zooms it in to a single child who will come, a deliverer, one person who will be born as the Prince of Peace, as the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. This is the child that the Gospels introduce us to. He's the child who comes to deliver his people from their sins. He is the child who grows living a perfect life and dies a death he did not deserve. He is the child who rose again from the grave. And in that resurrection comes a promise that the down payment on this new world has been received and accepted, that there is no sin left that is not wiped away by the death of Jesus for those who trust in him. His resurrection is proof that it did the job. It's a down payment on a new world. It's a pledge that sorrow is not the last word, that death is swallowed up in victory, that the God who can raise the dead can provide all that we need and protect us from all oppression. But we still wait, don't we? We wait for his return. We find ourselves, even on this side of Jesus, claiming the hope of the fact that Jesus is alive. We find ourselves in the terms of verse 9. We long to look ahead to that day. We look ahead with longing 
to the day when we can say we have waited for him that he might save us, to the day when we can be glad and rejoice in his salvation because we see it for what it is. But for now, we wait. Waiting on the Lord is a concept all through the Old Testament. There's, there is in it a call for patience, but it's more than that. It's a call for faith, a call for trust that the God who made these promises is worth staking ourselves to, even when the promises get cloudy or call into question by the things we experience. The call to wait on this God is a call to look at the injustice and sorrow and want and death that's around us in this world, to take on the reproach of identifying with him in these, in these circumstances, and to hold on in the meantime, to wait for him to deliver, to see the salvation of our God and his good time. That's the calling for you, and that's what Advent is all about. Wait for him. He's coming. Be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Oh, Father, we so long for this world to be here. Fear is such a defining reality for us. How many different fears do we face each day? How many fears have we been afflicted with even this morning? What fears were the first things we thought about when we woke up? Oh Lord, we long for you to take them all away. We are powerless to bring about the change that we want to see. We know that. but we trust that you are a God powerful and strong to save. That just as you made this world, you are capable of making it new once and for all. We claim the promise that in Jesus' death and resurrection, that new world has broken into ours, that the morning has dawned. We long for the day. We long for the day when the sun will shine as at noon. Bring it, we pray, Father. Come quickly for the glory of your great name in which we pray. Amen. This morning as we respond to God's word, we're going to begin in what is a, a, a slightly unusual way for us. We've asked a member of our church, Kelby Carlson, to lead us in our response by singing for us the first song that we'll use to respond to God's word. I invite you to take your worship guide and to prayerfully consider these words as we prepare our hearts to, to hear and receive God's word together. Break forth, O beauteous heavenly light, and usher in the morning. Shrink not, ye shepherds, with affright, but hear the angel's warning. This child now weak in infancy, our confidence and joy shall be the power of Satan breaking, our peace eternal making. This night of wonder, night of joy, 
boy was born, the Christ our brother. He came not in might to destroy, but bid us love each other. How could he quit his kingly state for such a world of grief and hate? What deep humiliation secured the world's salvation? Come, dearest child, into our hearts and leave your crib behind you. Let this be new life from the start for those who seek and find you. To you be honor, thanks, and praise for all this time and gifts of grace. <laughs> 